Today we start a new sermon series, which is going to be wonderful. And uh, our sermon series is in the book of James. And there's no book in the Bible quite like the book of James. Um, it is direct. <laughs> it is uh, it's hard-hitting. Um, he doesn't cut any corners. Famous, famous theologians have said of the book of James, this book should not be in the New Testament because it's hard, <laughs> ridiculously hard. And so we're going to study it because life comes out of this book. There is so much good in this book. Um, there is so much, there's so much rich context in this book. We're only going to be studying it for four weeks. And there are five chapters. And so we're just going to be flying through the book of James. But what we're going to do is I'm going to challenge every single one of us to read the five chapters of James during the week, every week, which means you'll read it four times throughout this sermon series. It's one chapter a day. And you get two days that you don't have to read it. All right? So it's pretty easy. It, the, the language isn't challenging. It's a pretty easy book. We're also going to read it just here. Um, I'm going to read one chapter every week. And, uh, and we're going to get through it that way as well. Now, there's one more element that I want you guys to do is when we're reading it, when you're reading it, I'd like you to take notes. And there are a couple of really easy notes that you could take. The first note is asking yourself the question, what is valuable in what I'm reading right now? What is like the most important thing that, I, that, that is just like, this matters? What's important? The second one is, what do I have a question about? What makes me think about this differently? What is a question that comes up as I read it or it is read to me? What's a question? So today, I'm going to read, I'm going to read it, uh, chapter 1. And what I want to do is, while I'm reading, I want you to think of a question or something that's important. Um, if it's a question, what I want you to do is I want you to use your tablet... And on today's message, write Q, and then you can write your question while I'm reading the text. If it's something important, you write I, and then write your thought about what's important while I'm reading the text. All right, so I, I'll be reading the text. You guys can be on your tablet um, and, uh, and or on your phone, and, and you can do that. And we're going to interact with the text like that. This information is going to start to, to build towards our forum, and, and these thoughts are going to build towards our forum. So today is James chapter 1. Uh, right before I read, I'm just going to take a quick note, and I'm going to tell us, we're going to talk about who James is and why he's writing. Um, it's called James because we think that a guy named James wrote it. But who? What James? Um, the James that we have for the author, we think, is James, the brother of Jesus. 
So the reason we think that is because his greeting, you'll notice right there, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's actually toned down language. The, the actual word is a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a secular address. The normal address inside of other books of the Bible, uh, other New Testament letters, is grace and peace to you. That's a Christian address. But James, a servant, is a secular address. It's only used in three other spots in the New Testament. Two of them are official political letters. And the other one is when James, we know it's James, the brother of Jesus, who is heading up the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15, there's a whole council, and James addresses everybody with a um, servant of God or slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He used the same language. And so we take those circumstantial pieces of evidence, and we, and we say, okay, this is probably James, the brother of Jesus, talking. It's also because of the content. We're talking about very specific ways of the way Christians need to be living. James is the first bishop of the church in all history. He's the first bishop of the church that ever ruled or sat over, presided over churches. And so it would make sense for James in his position to say, now I'm going to tell you the way it is. Now I'm going to tell you what needs to be outlined, what needs to be done. And so James, in, in his position, he's saying, this letter is for all churches for all time. And, uh, and so it's very relevant for us to read today. So I'm going to read it from the screen today. Um, and, uh, and let's go with this. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one that doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brothers boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he passes away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. 
Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Lord Jesus, we hear your word. We hear it in a large block. God, I pray that that a question would rise from what we just read or a, a sense of importance would stick out to us. God, that you, would, that you would cause us to ask questions of your word. Because it's in those questions that we learn. It's in those questions that we consider and you grow us and you challenge us. And so, Jesus, we read this scripture. And as we go through it today, I pray that you would challenge us and grow us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. That was a lot, eh? Big block of scripture, nice, um, but it's good. It is very good that we that we read scripture together. So we're one of the questions I'm going to focus on today. There's so much in that we're not getting through it all. I'm just going to pick out two verses out of the middle of it, and uh, and we're going to deal with that today. And we're going to talk about temptations. The question that I have is where do our evil tendencies come from, and whose fault our are our evil tendencies. The, uh, the early church had, was, uh, was right before Jesus. Um, the, the Jewish community was asking these questions a lot. From 300 years before Jesus all the way to 100 years before Jesus, they were like, where is evil coming from? This is a story that, uh, that I've heard has happened. It's probably happened in my house. It's probably happened in your house. One day a father came home to hear his wife sounding frustrated at the two children at the house. The father listens, knowing that the wife is completely justified in her frustration. Clearly there had been an altercation. And clearly the children were not listening to their mother. Like that never happens, eh? The mother had the situation under control because there is a God and it's miraculous, it's wonderful. And so the mother had the situation under control And even through frustration, even though it existed, the mother was speaking in firm terms to the children. 
So the father put down his bag quietly. He listens to the one daughter trying to justify herself to her mother. I was going to listen to you, but my sister kept on stopping me by distracting me. As soon as the older daughter finished her reasoning, the younger daughter said, I was trying to give you back the thing that you gave me, but you weren't listening to me, so I couldn't do what mommy was asking. Both girls just break down into tears. They, know that they knew that they disappointed mommy. Both of them are positively sure that it wasn't their fault. The father entered the room to see his wife hugging her children, and he knows that everything's going to be all right. Where does it come from? Where does the idea of these evil tendencies that we have, we see it so early on in life, the, the, the it's not my fault, I gotta blame something else, I gotta, I gotta find some other reason, and in my mind, I am justified in my own actions. It's not very many people in our culture today that actually go out of the way to be bad and wrong. Generally, we do things because we know that there's a good cause on it. Very general story I heard during the week um, is, is a story of, of people, uh, teenagers, just being mean to each other, and yet they thought that they were right in their being mean. They thought they were justified. Wow. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So why? Where do our evil tendencies come from? Well, the, the Jewish community before Jesus, they'd really gotten into this. And they had came up with two really solid options. God made me do it. God made me do it. See, because what they, what they wrote in, in God made me do it, actually, if we just go back, what they said is, uh, there, was, there was a rabbinic saying said, God said that it repents me that I created the evil tendency in man, for had I not done so, he would not have rebelled against me. So the rabbis before Jesus were saying, well, you know, if, if God hadn't made us, you know, have a propensity towards evil, then we would have never done evil, so therefore all evil is God's fault. That was, that was before Jesus. That was actually what they believed. That was one of the options. The second option was Satan made me do it. Satan made me do it. So the rabbis were, were, were praying and they were developing and they were like, okay, so when we look at the story of the Garden of Eden, something happened here where Satan made me do it. So in one of the writings during that time, and it was an apocryphal work called The Life of Adam and Eve, stories told, Satan took the form of an angel and speaking through the serpent, he put into Eve the desire for the forbidden fruit, made her swear that she would give the fruit to Adam as well. When he had made me swear, says Eve, he ascended up into the tree, but in the fruit he gave me to eat, he placed the poison of his malice, that is of his lust, for lust is the beginning of all sin. Well, that's what it is. Our evil tendencies come from Satan. It must be that. Must be evil tendencies come from Satan. And therefore, everything I do, I'm being controlled. Everything evil I do, I must be being controlled by Satan. Therefore, I'm innocent. Okay. Doesn't quite work. 
And, and it didn't work. And so James is addressing this, and James is saying, no, no, no. Verse 13, uh, James, is, James is saying, um, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts nobody. It's not from God. It's not from God. And what James does is James shows us a little bit of reality. I want us to know that our reality today, we swim in the waters of evil. We do. Evil surrounds us all the time. We watch it. We see it. We know what it looks like. We get that feeling. I have this really sad reality that even at Promise Church, as young as the church is, Promise Church has sadly already hurt people. <laughs> Not like intentionally, it was actually mean, it was like whatever. But I said something that caused hurt. We're a church and the evil exists around us. The evil exists around us and it's something that, that we are so familiar with. We think about our own homes, and, and the video we saw today said, why do we fight with people that we love the most? Well, that's the reality of the evil that's around us. It is present. It is not, it is not God who's doing this. It is a reality of our world. But James says, no, no. In verse 14, James, James talks about how we become responsible for the evil we create. He lays out a four-stage process of how evil actually is started and creates in us. And one of the great things about this is it actually doesn't just drive down this massive sense of guilt. It allows us to open up our eyes to see the ways which the devil works in, in and around and the ways that we catch on. And we actually engage with the evil around us. So verse 14 is stage one. Stage one says we are enticed by our own desires, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. We are enticed by our own desires. John Piper in 1984 wrote a great book called Desiring God. It's, a, it's the thoughts of a Christian hedonist, someone who pursues pleasure for Christ. And, uh, and he said, um, and I'll get to that quote in a second, but he said that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And he, the, he's adjusting an old statement that says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, Piper says it's by enjoying him forever. The chief end of God is, is, to in, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. See, he's correcting something that happened in the church where, where we actually have this belief that all desires are negative. That if it, ta if it feels good, don't do it because it's probably sin. 
You know, that there's a whole tradition of the church that actually really pushed that message down, down a lot of generations' throats and said, if it feels good, don't do it because it's probably sin. And, and Piper is responding against it. C.S. Lewis joins in that response against that idea. And C.S. Lewis says, if we consider the unblushing promises of the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel... It would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Desire and passion is good, but not all desires and passions are good. Some of them produce in us evil. And so what we're going to do is we're looking at these, at these steps. Um, our, our desire the point that we're in is we are enticed by our own desires. First John 2, 15 and 17 says this, Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that the world desire all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John here is saying we're going to take, we're going to take these desires that we have and we're going to start categorizing them. And we're going to say, what desires are the desires of God? What desires are the things that, that will improve our quality of life, will improve the actual long-term direction of our life? What desires of God do we have that will say, that's wisdom and that actually steps up your standard of living? This is something that improves the way that your relationships work, the way that your parenting style works, the way that your, the way that your job environment works. This is an improvement because you're desiring the type of peace that God desires. But then he goes, okay, but, but there are other desires that actually degrade those things. We remove peace. And we remove those things that, that would be beneficial. And so John 2 says, the, says these three areas. This says that the pride of our hearts, what we, the lust of our eyes, the things that we desire in our flesh, these things, they're tied to something that's passing away. Let's desire something that is transcendent. Let's desire God who actually says there's something way better. This peace that I offer you is way better than what you have. Let's stop being half-hearted in our desires and actually desire more. See, we, we find our place that, that we desire, and we desire things that are not good sometimes, but when we desire things that are not good, because none of us wants to go out there and be a bad person, we do the next step. We actually rationalize it. So stage two is found in the beginning of verse 15, where we rationalize our sin, and that's the deception that we have. 
we rationalize it. And verse 15 says, it's somewhere. I should actually just open up my Bible. There it is. The heart is deceitful above all things. That's not actually verse 15. That's Jeremiah, but it's good. The heart is deceitful above all things, and who can know it? Imagine I drop my, my MacBook right now. This is good, like because it really gets us to a point where we're saying, God, what are my desires in my heart? The heart is very deceitful. Has anybody desired something in your life where you're just like, I actually really desire that, and then you just rationalize it? You know it's not really what's good for you, but you rationalize it. So verse 15 says, Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. When it's conceived, when we rationalize it, we, we take that desire and we rationalize it, and it and it's this step right here. This is actually a really important one. See, because our heart is deceitful, I'm going to pick on three that really, that, that stand out. I've heard them lots of times, and maybe you've said them, and there's nothing implicitly wrong with any of these three. But there's a sneaky little thing that sneaks in and changes this from being a godly desire to being something that actually tears down your life. Let's look at the first one. The first one is, I just want some me time. There's nothing wrong with having boundaries and setting that peace in your life where you say, this is, this is enough. I need this time that I'm going to get peace. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. That is a good desire. Yet the exact same desire can take a sinister turn as we move from the idea of, I just want some me time, to the idea of isolation. As we move along the scale from a healthy boundary in my life where I say, I need to cut out some me time because I am running way too fast and there's too much going on and all this stuff and that is a healthy thing to do. This is godly. And then we start to go, I want some me time because I need to get away from that and that person, right? I hate that person. And now we start breaking down community. We start moving away from others. We start to push back and we say, no, it is better for me to be alone. I just want to be alone. And we move towards isolation and we, and we break apart the relationships that God calls us to that bring us to peace. So subtle. So subtle. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. Look at another one. I just want to live a little. Come on. Just want to live a little. This is so hard and boring and hard. And, oh, and I'm so weighed down. I remember in my, in my young adult life feeling that young adult angst of life. And I just wanted to go. Just, just go. Forget it. Just go. Do whatever I want. And, uh, and, and there's a godly desire and I just want to live a little. John 10.10 10 says, I came to give you life so that you could have it to the full to the full. Live it. Live life and live it with joy and passion and godliness. And it's good. But then there's a sinister turn that I just want to live a little. It takes when we go, I just want to indulge. I just want to throw off those boundaries that actually help me experience peace and stability in my life. And I want to just screw it. And I'm just going to go do whatever the heck I feel like. I'm going to pursue those passions right now. And I'm just going to go whatever. Whatever comes what may. 
and the relationships that I burn along the way, well, that's just what happens. I don't care. I got to just live a little. Wow. Exact same phrase turns from being a godly thing, very quickly falls into deception and breaks down. Does that, are people seeing it? Are you seeing the way that it just goes like, whoa. So it's not so much about categorizing our sin. It's understanding the temptation that's in front of us. It's not like, if you do this, this is sin. No. No, it's, we need to understand what's going on. And is this building towards the type of desire that God's building in our life? Or does it work against what God is doing? Does it break down the relationships? Does it break down love? The last one is, I deserve to spoil myself today. Well, godly value is enjoyment. You could totally just enjoy things. There are times where, where if you're a mom in here, it is the best thing to just go to nails for party and just get your nails done. Okay? My wife's like, what the heck? You didn't tell me that before. <laughs> it's a great thing. You get to just indulge, get, get, to, get to just be there, and then I get to spoil myself today. Can eat so easily turn into greed. So easily can be like, I don't care what your day was like. This is about me right now. This is about me, and I'm going to get what I want, and I don't care what you need or what you think about or anything like that. This is about me. I deserve to spoil myself today. And, and even just by the tone of voice, you can hear the deception. So when we are tempted, what's happened is we start to rationalize these, these thoughts and these desires. We're like, no, you know what? I really deserve that. And I don't care what my wife wants. I deserve that. How many people know that ended well? Because <laughs> it didn't. Um, so deception, this deception, it's not usually noticed. It's not noticed until we live it out. And then we see the payback from it. And we go, oh, crap, I screwed something up. Oh, no, I sinned. Because all sin is, is the marker of the action that, that breaks down God's desire plan in our life instead of builds it up. And so we look at the reaction, we look at the outcomes of the things that we did, and we evaluate in rearview mirror and go, oh shoot, I thought that it was okay, and I was wrong, and it broke down my relationship rather than built it up. I thought that it was okay, but it didn't build the type of life that God was leading me on. It actually took away from the type of ideal life that God is leading me on. And we look back at ourselves, and we go, oh, that was something. So it rationalized. And verse 15 continues on, and it says, then desire, when it's being conceived, rationalized, it gives birth to sin. It gives birth to sin. The rationalization gives birth to the action of sin. See, according to James, our sin is telegraphed in a way. You can see your sin coming if you can actually understand your desires. If you can get to a point where you're getting it and saying, this is my desire, this is what's going on, and you can see it starting to build in you. You start to push away. Yeah, but I don't care about that. One of the biggest deceptions of sin is when we're tempted by sin, 
just show me a hand if you've ever felt this. When you're tempted by sin, it seems that only the pleasurable and good things are in your mind. But then as soon as you've done it, all of the crap that came involved all of a sudden comes into your mind. And you're like, why didn't I see that like 10 minutes ago? Anybody been there? Have you seen that? Yeah, where you're just like, oh my gosh. See, what happens is the desires, we become blind to the desires. We become blind and we say, oh man, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see it coming, but James says it's telegraphed, and it happens in community. Uh, Genesis 4, 7, this is Cain, um, God and Cain, and God says, uh, God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. These desires that we have that break down the the vision that God has for us, we must rule over, and we do it inside of our community. See, the fight isn't actually found where we actually see the sin in stage three. The fight's actually in stage two. It's in the it's in the rationalization, and it requires community, where we talk we talk out ideas with people. Hey, so this is what I want to do. Okay, so where does that lead? What what are the results? What are you what are you hoping to get from that? Well, okay, so here's the deal. I bought a CRV a few years ago. It was a really bad financial choice. But you know what? It wasn't sin. I'm not, I'm not, but it, the same thing applies. So I bought this CRV and I was in the, and I was in the, the dealership and I'm, and I'm there and I see the car that I want and I don't have the money in the bank to pay for the car I want but I want that car. I have enough money in the bank to buy just a random car, but I want that car. And all of the good things were there in my mind. All the benefits that this beautiful car is going to give us. It's just a CRV, guys. But it's this beautiful car. It's like this wonderful high-end piece of machinery, and it's all the benefits are right there. And I'm seeing all the positives so I work my budget with my wife and I like, you know, play my little like, yeah, this is wonderful. And we go through all the positives of how great it's going to be to buy this car. We buy the car. Let me tell you, God has blessed us a lot and it's been good. But it was the worst financial decision that I've made. For me, the consequence of buying the car tied up all of my uh, uh, disposable income into debt repayment. And that started to create places where if something happened in my life where we needed something, we actually didn't have the disposable income to pay for it, which meant that we created more debt. And then we created a little bit more debt. We didn't drown, it was all manageable debt and it's all fine and there's nothing wrong and the CRV's paid off now and whatever. But I was like, oh shoot, it's that. Where all the positives show themselves first and the negatives come out in the wash, and you're just like, oh, it's that. That's what sin's like. So we need to actually deal with it when we're in stage two. The battle is right in stage two. So when we're in stage three and somebody has sinned in front of us, you see a brother or sister sin, it's not our place to judge them. It's actually our place to say, was I involved in the dialogue that led to that? Was I even present? Was I even there? Was there something that that God could have led me to do that could have helped that not fall apart so badly? Not see that train wreck happen? 
the last stage is death and decay, and we're just going to finish with this because because sin, desire when it's being conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully bro- when it when it's fully realized gives birth to death. It's just what happens. It's not because, you know, God is judging and blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't have done. No, it's just what happens. It's just the reality. And it's a sad reality because I see so many people live in the decay of the sinful actions that they do. And it breaks them and they suffer and they struggle. And, and it's hard. And it's hard. The short-term satisfaction blinds us to the death and decay that accompanies our evil desires. James 1.25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He'll be blessed in his doing. God's word gives us some structures, some experience that says, Hey, you know what? These type of actions, they lead to death and decay. It's not because we're trying to be arbitrary here. It's not because we're trying to be legalistic. It's actually just the way that relationships work. If I say to my wife, I don't care what you think, I don't care what you need, and I don't put her first the way that Ephesians 5 says that I need to, if I don't do that, then guess what's going to happen in my relationship? It's actually going to be death and decay. It's just experience. So sin is, is really about, it does lead to death, but it's not because we're trying to be mean when we conclude today, <coughs> the royal law that James talks about is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And C.S. Lewis said that we fool around with desires that are only half-hearted. My question is, are there desires in your heart that are half-hearted, that are caught up in the passing things of this world? And as we close today, I'm going to have uh, Devin come up. We're going to do things just a little bit different. We have time. Proverbs says that as iron sharpens iron, so does one person sharpen another. First John says that if we confess our sins to each other, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we know that we know that in community we actually have these conversations about sin. We have these conversations, not because we want to be legalistic or controlling, because I'm not here telling you what you can and cannot do. This is what the Holy Spirit's doing in you and saying, hey, for you, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to address. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is, is as Devin plays and as they sing together, I'm going to ask you to pray And if you want, you can pray with a table leader. It would actually be beneficial. It's healthy. It's part of community. You pray with the table leader and say, hey, this is going on. And they're not going to tell anybody because I will personally lead them towards death and decay. (laughs) Rick's like, what? (laughs) But if if you need to pray with somebody, that's why we're here. Because God wants to see us live towards life and he wants to see us live a life that's worth it. And there are temptations that we have that actually destroy and take away from that vision that God has for your life. And they look good. Those temptations look good. So I'd encourage you to close your eyes. Devin's going to lead us in a song. Allow the Holy Spirit to do work. And if you need to pray, just tap your table leader. Joel's here, Valerie's there, Rick's there, um, Alicia's there. 
<laughs> Cassandra's willing to pray with you is great. She's right there. God, as you work, open our eyes to the things that we're tempted by. Lead us in the way of life. In your name.